0: Thank you for listening to Voices of UMass Med, a podcast produced by the University of Massachusetts Medical School's Office of Communications. Welcome to the Voices of UMass Med.
1: Modern medicine devours one out of every $5 spent in the United States, a fifth of our economy chasing healing, health, and breakthrough treatments. Of course, more people are living longer, healthier lives. But in today's Voices of UMass Med, we are putting the focus on what happens when modern medicine cannot cure what ails us. For many at that time, palliative care is a perhaps surprisingly hopeful and reassuring answer for patients and families. We're joined by Dr. Jennifer Reedy, who is the Chief of the Division of Palliative Care at UMass Memorial Medical Center and an Associate Professor of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. She is board certified in hospice and palliative medicine. Along a lot of titles, but welcome. We're very happy to have you here. Excited to be here. Thanks for joining us. We feel, Dr. Reedy, like this is a really important topic. We're grateful for your time and to help us raise awareness. So let's begin, if you will, by explaining what palliative care is for those who might not be aware of it and how palliative care differs from hospice. Great. Yeah, that's a
2: great question, because you're right. There sometimes can be confusion about those terms. Very simply put, I would describe the palliative care team as the quality of life team for people living with serious illness. So palliative care is specialized medical care for people with a serious illness of some kind to help, with, help people feel better physically by managing pain and other symptoms, to help try to reduce the emotional distress on people and their loved ones to provide practical support um, when care is challenging or people are more frail and having trouble managing at home and tolerating their treatments and really to help make sure that we're doing the right things in medicine to help people that are consistent with their goals and values and preferences. So the
1: right things for each particular patient. Exactly.
2: You described how healthcare, I mean thank goodness for all those things, all exactly. those all of those innovations in healthcare. Thank goodness for it and save lives every day and prolong life and keep people well, prevent disease. All those things are hugely important. And at the same time, sometimes healthcare can feel a little bit like a giant steamroller where there's there's things we can do and that we have. But the key is, particularly with people who have serious illness, is to slow down the steamroller and pause and say, we know what we could do, but should we, based on who is that human being and what are their values, what's important to them, what are their priorities, and for the family as well. Um, You know, um, Atul Gawande likes to say, who's a big champion of palliative care, likes to say that patients have more, have priorities other than just living longer. And I think in medicine sometimes, you know, we are fighting for people's lives and thank goodness for that. But we have to remember to slow
1: down and find out what are those other things that are important to people. And so in some ways you could imagine that palliative care would put some of the control back to the patient in what feels like a really uncontrollable situation. And, and when you talk about palliative care, is it instead of in addition to other treatments? Yes,
2: absolutely. So getting back to your question about definition. So palliative care focuses on all those quality of life issues and it is regardless of whether someone is receiving treatment to prolong life or to try to cure the underlying disease. So it's done alongside those things. And palliative care specialists work as an extra layer of support along with people's other physicians and health care providers. That's different. Uh, from hospice care which you asked about so hospice care um, I would call specialty specialized palliative care for end-of-life meaning people who are likely to pass away within six months or less Mm -hmm. Um, hospice is a is really the gold standard for end-of-life care meaning that Um, I used to work as a hospice medical director before I came to UMass, so I'm very familiar with hospice care and boy It's it's something to behold sort of the power of the hospice team and taking care of people and their loved ones And helping people when they are at end-of-life to have peace try to foster peace Dignity comfort meaningful time together with loved ones in a place that is home or home-like and honor their life and so hospice is um, you know covered by a hospice benefit, which helps provide a system of care for people outside the hospital for end-of life care. So it provides a team of folks including a doctor, a nurse case manager, social worker, chaplain, home health aides, volunteers, bereavement counselors, and they're on call 24 seven and hospice benefit covers all of the medications and equipment related to, um... the person's care and it's really kind of the most care you can get outside the hospital in many ways at home and so um... you know we work very collaboratively with hospice when we have people who are at end of life and um... you know so we so ideally um... we when when hospice is indicated we do a, a kind of smooth transition to hospice to help
1: people you talked about how powerful and profound palliative care it can be to provide palliative care. And I think part of the reason for that is because we can all relate to this because we all have a story. Mm -hmm. If you get to a certain point in life, you've probably been through a situation where this was a part Mm -hmm. of the equation. You know, for some people, the loss of a loved one is relatively peaceful. For others, they really wish it had gone very differently. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm just wondering if there's a particular story you can share with our listeners just to give a sense of how powerful palliative medicine can be yeah
2: so um, I've had the privilege of working in this field for about 15 years now and there's so many people and families I can think of and because these stories are really personal and pretty sacred I I, in thinking about sharing stories I did ask permission um, uh, of one particular patient and his wife so I can share his story So this was a a patient I took care of in my clinic, so I had uh, the opportunity to know him for about five years. He was first diagnosed with metastatic melanoma um, to his brain about five years ago. Um, He uh, was a ordained minister and a professor of ethics and religious studies and um, a great storyteller and someone who is very gregarious and lots of friends he and his wife have had three sons and multiple grandchildren and of course this diagnosis was absolutely devastating and we know melanoma is a very dangerous cancer so when he was first diagnosed of course this was a huge emotional shock as well as physically he had been through the ringer he went through surgery to remove the lesion in his brain he had Uh, radiation therapy and then he went through immunotherapy and you're probably aware that immunotherapy is a whole nother game changer for cancer care and so he had some uh, he had a an immunotherapy treatment which actually worked incredibly well where he had a durable response and remission but it caused severe side effects where It damaged his pituitary gland and he had a lot of sort of ongoing uh, hormonal or endocrine side effects that we were managing. But when I first met him, he was dealing with the anxiety of his diagnosis. He was having trouble with sleeping. He was very tired and just wondering what the future holds and what does this mean for me as a human being? Can I still teach? Can I still preach? You know what? What? How much time might I have? I still do everything that's right. important to me. Exactly. So um, I got to know him and his wife over the years in clinic, and you know he. We got his sleeping. We helped him improve his sleep through streamlining his medicines and really trying to minimize those, um, but also adding. You know, he was diagnosed with sleep apnea and started using a CPAP machine. We had him think about doing some cognitive behavioral therapy type techniques to try to help with sleep, and ultimately that all improved. Um, And um, then once he had shown that he was in kind of a durable response to the immunotherapy, now he, he felt so blessed that he had this time Um, And I remember he would always say to me in clinic, I'm still here and I'm so (laughs) glad to be here and I feel so lucky. Mm -hmm. And he then used that time to travel around the country. He had a son in Tennessee and a son in Maine and see his grandchildren. He was um, the keynote speaker at his 50th high school reunion in Ohio and so did that. He had to start weaning down and stop teaching at um, the college level, which was a big loss and also started taking a lesser role at his church and that was of course very hard because he loves, that's a big part of his identity and he loves it and has so much to share Um, and so there was a phase where I was seeing him for not only symptom management but also listening to him talk about living with cancer and knowing that he was he felt like he was on borrowed time to some degree and trying to live while also knowing that at some point it would come back. So then about two years ago, he did have another recurrence in his brain. He had more radiation um, and having a lot of fatigue. um, We helped him with managing um, that symptom as well. Um, And um, he wanted, one of his goals was to go to Maine to be present when his granddaughter was being born. And he and his wife were able to do that and to see their granddaughter. And then he had more immunotherapy, a couple of different types, and then ultimately had uh, visceral involvement of the cancer in his spleen and his abdomen. And eventually uh, the burdens were greater than the benefits of any treatment and the disease wasn't responding. And he and his wife were ready to think about end-of-life care and hospice care. And so then he died eventually under hospice care. Um, and. You know i'll just never forget him because he's a lovely human being and he was so i feel blessed to hear him sort of share his uh, feelings and his
1: journey as he was living with cancer and then facing end of life and as you said palliative care can be quality of life care mm-hmm. i think that's really a great demonstration of it on the micro level when you think about our entire health system bigger communities like that what have you learned in terms of like medical research about palliative care and the impact that it can have you know does it lead to better outcomes savings or does it cost more you know those kinds of things Yeah, absolutely
2: so all of those topics are hugely important and they're important here at UMass, but also on a state and national level, and it's something that we in our field talk about all the time, because it's all about making the case for growth, because we are a newer subspecialty, and uh, we are still, you know, trying to catch up with the demand, because if you think about the demographics of our society with our aging population, there's a huge demand for palliative care. But there's a short uh, a workforce shortage of palliative care specialists around the country. And nationally, the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine is trying to come up with strategies to address that. We're trying to develop more fellowship programs, including here at UMass. We're raising money for that. That's hugely important. Um, and so, but, but to your point, you know, increasing workforce but also defining what are those metrics to show what is the benefit of palliative care. Um, So, on the individual and family level, absolutely there's lots of data to show that palliative care improves pain, uh, management of other physical symptoms, anxiety, depression. There was also a breakthrough study several years ago now out of um, Mass General Oncology Clinic showing that early palliative care improves survival in people with stage
1: 4 non-small cell lung cancer. That might surprise a lot of people. So palliative yes. care can improve survival, keep you yes. alive longer? Yes. interesting. So in that study, it was a randomized
2: controlled trial of people with um, incurable lung cancer, and one arm was usual care uh, in oncology, and the other arm was usual care plus palliative care. And again, it showed that those folks lived three months longer, which, if that was a chemotherapy drug, that would be going through the roof on Wall Street. Um, but uh, also, it showed that those folks had less anxiety, less depression, better symptom management. So that's on a patient and family level. Um, in terms of health systems and society, you mentioned at the outset about the health care spending, I think it's important to, it's been shown that as a side effect of doing the right thing, meaning doing good palliative care where you, you, you slow down that steamroller, you pause you take stock of the situation, you ask questions about what's important to that person, and then you individualize the plan of care. That by doing that, as a side effect of that, most people, particularly at the very close to end of life, will choose to not be in the hospital, not be in the ICU, Use less healthcare resources and be at home in their in their real lives outside of healthcare, and as a side effect, that helps decrease healthcare utilization, of end of life, and spending. And so, I I am careful when I say that because that is not the goal ever, but it's simply a side effect of it. And so, it's one of palliative care is one of those things in healthcare where we really meet that triple aim. You know, we improve quality, we reduce uh, harm from unwanted or non-beneficial treatment and, um, you know, it, it is uh, high value in that it can reduce
1: costs, particularly at end of life. So with that in mind, I have to ask, can patients and families who are listening to this assume that palliative care is the standard of care? I guess the question really is how widely available is it? Yeah.
2: I, my mission in life, in my career, is to make it standard of care, and it really is. A lot has changed just even in my fifteen years of practice, where um, now at a national level many different accrediting bodies or the Joint Commission have, um, you know, certifications or expectations that palliative care is involved in, as as standard of care. and so um, for one example, we have a, a new program here at UMass, the, the VAD program, the Ventricular Assist Device program. Medicare requires that palliative care be part of the core team in focusing on quality of life issues with people with advanced heart failure. That's one example. But I could give you many examples from all different disciplines about how palliative care really is you know, being required now and expected as standard of care. Um, And here at UMass, you know, we have grown over time, definitely, and we've come a long way where we, when I first started here eight years ago, there were only two of us physicians and we weren't even a division Mm -hmm. at that time. And since then we've become a division under the departments of medicine and family medicine. And we now have a team of four physicians, three nurse practitioners, two social workers, and a pharmacist and we cover inpatient, very busy inpatient consult services here at University Campus, as well as Memorial Hospital and at the uh, ACC building we have an outpatient clinic as well. So we've come a long way, but yet we have a long way to go in that we have a lot of demand that we struggle to meet and I'd love as um, chief to see us, we really need to move beyond just being in the hospital walls in a crisis or in the ED. I mean, it's good that we're there and that's, we should be there and we're proud of that work, but I would love to see us be able to meet people much earlier in the course of illness um, and in their own lives at home or in a nursing facility Um, and to be able to have a community-based palliative care team that would partner as people are in different places and has seamless kind of coordinated care.
1: Well, maybe that's a good point to share some um, statistics that, that I thought were rather striking just about palliative care in general and sort of the, how, how, how aware patients and families are of it. Um, there, you, you work closely with the Massachusetts Coalition for Serious Illness Care and they did a 2017 survey in the state of Massachusetts that found two-thirds of people say they want to talk to their doctor about uh, palliative care, so 67%, only 14% have done that. Um, In in other research that's been done, 82% have said it's important to put their wishes in writing around end of life. Only 23% have done it. 90% of people say they want to talk to a loved one, that it's important about their end-of-life wishes, but again only a quarter have done it. So how do you um, wrap your head around that disconnect? Right. How can you encourage more people to yes. take that first step? Yes. So yeah, I think about that topic all the time and it's a very challenging
2: sort of puzzle to tease out because it's very high stakes and we so want to make sure and right? it's so emotional. So if I break it down into maybe different pieces, so for all of us as people Um, and as patients or, you know, uh, thinking about our own health, you know, as you say, it's emotional, it's hard to think about, it's the unimaginable. We don't want to have to think about it, of course. And depending on our personality, some people are more planning ahead type people, and other people are sort of go with the flow. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, our personalities come into play with that. Um, And also in our families, you know, we out of love sometimes will try to protect each other and don't want to talk about difficult things and so it becomes the sort of elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about but they're thinking about it so those sorts of you know so there are lots of there are some programs um, we talked about this ahead of time about the conversation project which is say a a not-for-profit group that Ellen Goodman from the Boston Globe has led and championed which gives people uh, tools to try to sit, prepare, and sit down at the kitchen table with their loved ones to either bring up their own wishes or ask their loved one their wishes in a very simple form to kind of write those things down. So, how do we kind of break the ice? So, there's yeah, that, that can and be and also thinking about issues around culture and people's different um, belief systems and how that comes into play. So, we have to be better about having those kinds of materials available in multiple different languages and really engage people in the community uh, from all walks of life in advance care planning. Um, one group we partner with in that is something called, is a group called Honoring Choices which is a not-for-profit group that's run by an elder, former elder law attorney Ellen DePalo, and she has helped create materials like that as well as short videos of people speaking in uh their native language non-english speaking about why is it important to have a healthcare agent so so that's sort of on the community side i guess if i think about on the physician or clinician side the barriers are that uh you know all of us will tell you oh we don't have a lot of time and these conversations take time and they're emotional and sometimes we don't like emotional conversations in medicine it's messy, <laughs> or it brings up our own emotion yes. that maybe we're not prepared and to handle as much. can yeah. be fraught. And also, it's not just the emotion, but having the skills and the training to have the conversation. That that's changing now in medical education and in residency education, but um, for a long time, we really haven't taught those kinds of communication skills around serious illness, and so generations of Clinicians have kind of learned it on the job or had different role modeling, and um, so it takes some training and skills. And then thirdly, with this topic, there's systems issues. So how do we document it? How do we write it down, both for the person and their loved ones, but then how do we, let's say they actually do write it down, then what do we do with it? How do we shepherd it? How does it not just stay in the sock drawer at home? How do we put it into the healthcare s- setting so that it's in our electronic medical record, everyone can see it? If someone Great gets admitted point. and the ICU doctor needs to see it or the ED doctor or the social worker on the floor, so how do we make it visible to everyone so that it's not Groundhog Day again for that patient and family re-explaining everything? Or at least it gives the team that doesn't know that patient long-term a st- Springboard for discussion. So that's another thing. I, I have done, I was a quality scholar here at UMass, and I'm, uh, I believe quality uh, improvement is a very important tool for disseminating best practices in palliative care. So I've been very involved in helping with Epic Transition around advanced care planning and how are we, uh, you know, um, how, where are we putting those documents, how can we get to them quickly, and trying to improve that going forward.
0: You're listening to Voices of UMass Med, featuring the people, ideas, and advances of the University of Massachusetts Medical School.
1: An important part, you touched on it briefly, uh, medical education, making sure that new generations of physicians and nurse practitioners even um, are really comfortable and familiar with this. So can you talk a little bit about why that matters and what specifically is being done here at UMass Medical School to sort of ensure yeah. that teaching? Yeah, um, I, I,
2: I have to say that the, the medical students and the students at the Graduate School of Nursing and the residents here of all different disciplines are fired up about palliative care. Oh. I mean, they really, we, we often have to sometimes turn people away from doing electives with us because we're a very popular rotation. And I think the people that do work with us, either on a formal rotation or we just share patients on the, f- on the wards together, that it really sparks their sense of meaning and purpose, like why they got into medicine in the first place. Because so much of what we do is really practical and helpful to help people feel better and help reduce the tension and anxiety and the stress on everyone. But also it's about highlighting who is this person? They're a patient, but they're a person and uh, to really bring that forward as sort of the compass of, by which we do all of their care. And so that really speaks very powerfully to people. So, um, you know, so we have a lot of champions of students within the schools here and the residency. And um, one of the initiatives that we're working on now, which I'm really excited about, is through the Mass- Massachusetts Coalition, which you mentioned, So that group is sponsoring the four medical schools in the state of Massachusetts. So UMass, Harvard, Boston University, and Tufts um, to get together and to figure out how can we pledge that we're going to train all of our medical students in having Effective or setting the groundwork for being able to pr- continue to learn and practice effective conversations around serious illness, meaning breaking difficult news, uh, talking about prognosis, you know, exploring goals of care, and ma- making a real uh, um, compassionate and personalized plan of care. So, We all teach that to some degree, we we do. There's a lot of great um, curricula out there at the four schools. But the idea is that as peer mentors, as a learning community, we can help each other raise the bar and kind of motivate each other to do that. And so we were brought together by Atul Gawande and Harris Berman, who's the dean of Tufts Medical School. And we, over the last year, um, have been working together, and we've developed five competencies um, around serious illness communication, which we drafted together and then approved, and we rolled those out um, at the annual summit in May at the uh, JFK Library in Boston, and we pledged uh, together to uh, teach to those competencies. And so now the real work begins of implementation, <laughs> of right? Course, yes. <laughs> and so um, we our next step is to. Um, Blue Cross Blue Shield and the coalition are both investing funds in this process where as well as the schools themselves where we're going to focus on um, creating a curriculum mapping tool where we can kind of uh, look at our current state and what are we teaching now and does it meet the competencies or not and what's missing or where are our strengths and then share it with each other and help each other Uh, fill in some of those gaps or share ideas and lessons learned and then we're also going to do a baseline survey of medical students at the four schools to try to get a current state and then repeat that again hopefully in three years and four years and then each year you know we'll redo that curriculum map to kinda see you know what's changed Um, and then also we'll be doing at some point some shared faculty development So the idea is to create a common language around how we talk about and teach goals of care conversations and um, to um, be able to share resources and strategies for kind of standardizing
1: our teaching. It's really important. It is. Do you feel like, uh, what is that journey like as medical students start to learn about it? And I guess, how do they learn about it? A lot of it probably happens when they're in their clinical rotations and seeing it modeled. But is there a way to maybe get at that earlier through yeah. simulation or something? So currently at
2: UMass, we have uh, first and second year medical students have opportunities to learn more about palliative care, uh, mostly as an elective. Um, there, I, Myself and Dr. Dave Clive teach a course called Caring for the Seriously Ill. It's an elective that's very popular and many uh, students have gone through that, and a lot of them end up becoming champions of palliative care. We have a student interest group here um, that is very active and um, um, is actually a big part of this uh, coalition work that we're doing as well. Um, So in that course, we have Uh, patients or family members come in and tell their stories as well as other physicians telling talking about their role in serious illness care and so they get kind of an early glimpse there they do get some exposure as well through their doctoring and clinical skills course around communication issues and some end-of-life care Um, the third-year class then does an intra-clerkship that Mary Hawthorne Dr. Mary Hawthorne runs and, and our faculty also contribute to that course as well. Um, and then really though, I think it all starts to gel once they're on the wards and in the clinics and they start working either uh, with us on an elective um, or they are sub eyes and they're doing a family meeting with us or sharing a patient with us over time. Um, and then, uh, and that really can be the best learning because it's attached to a real life person you're taking care of and a family member, and that is really what is very transformational for a lot of students. Does it does
1: it uh, ever overwhelm them emotionally?
2: Yeah, absolutely, because you know we're really choosing in a way to go into the frying pan <laughs> of a crisis situation. Um, I'm thinking of a situation that I had just yesterday over at Memorial, which I I won't share the details, but I was working with two wonderful fourth year students and they were absolutely amazing, but it was a very emotional family meeting. And this one student was uh, on his ICU rotation and was very, of course, attached to this patient and family, but he did a beautiful job of participating and uh, his relationship with the patient was very important to the family. The family was looking at him for sort of his Insights and what he had to say, and afterwards we debriefed, and he talked about how it was emotional, but um, you know, so so meaningful. But to your point, one of these four, one of these five competencies is about the skill of learning how to sit with strong emotion and how to be aware of your own emotion, so that you can take care of yourself and and foster resiliency and avoid burnout because if we don't do that piece, and you just put yourself in the frying pan, then you need to
1: not get burnt. Well, that's what I was wondering about. Do the conversations that this job requires you to have get any easier with time?
2: Yes and no. In that no, it's always, especially if it's an end-of-life situation, it's always tragic and sad. The reason I say no is that over time I think I've learned to reframe for myself what we're doing, meaning that we don't have control over the fact that everyone at some point will, will die and everyone we love and that's a terrible thing to think about. But when you can't control it and it's happening anyway, you choose to show up in a very profound time in people's lives to try to make it a little better. And that to me is very meaningful, and an honor, and um, it can really have ripple effects beyond what we understand. It helps that patient hopefully find peace at end of life, but also for loved ones who witness it. And then down the line, there are other losses that occur, or the family you know—these all become part of family lore and stories, and the way that that all happened becomes part of the DNA of our family history and so that to me is a quote success in that as much as I don't want to see someone die and we try everything we can to try to stave that off but when it's time if that person can pass peacefully on their terms in control with their life honored and their loved ones in their grief over the years can look back and think you know what I was a good wife I was a good brother I was a You know, I did the right things, and I showed love, and we had meaningful time, and it was I did the right things. That is a success. And is
1: that why you chose to dedicate your career to palliative medicine?
2: Yeah, that's one of the reasons, absolutely. I would say that for me as a human being, it is a constant reminder of not only the fragility of, you know, our existence, but really it's about clarifying what's important you know we always ask people what's most important to you what are your values what are your priorities i guess that's sort of a question we should all ask ourselves all the time Um, because we can easily get caught up in stuff that you know we get anxious about or whatever sidetracked by i do that all the time for sure but it's a very clarifying sort of world to live in in that for to to watch people who know that time is limited in some way and then Um, figure out what matters most and you see a lot of love that comes out of that, that that is
1: very meaningful and helps me live better, hopefully. Wow. Thank you, Dr. Jennifer Reedy. This has been a really fascinating conversation. We could go on and on and on. Thank you so much for having me, I really appreciate it. So uh, we did, during our conversation, mention a few resources uh, that you and the coalition members have been working on. We'll do our best to make those available to listeners at umassmed.edu slash news. You've been listening to a conversation with Dr. Jennifer Reedy, the Chief of the Division of Palliative Care at UMass Memorial Medical Center, and an Associate Professor of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. She is board certified in hospice and palliative medicine.
0: You have been listening to Voices of UMass Med, a podcast produced by the Office of Communications at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Find news and all of our podcasts at umassmed.edu news, and stay up to date by following us on Facebook at UMass Med, on LinkedIn, and on Twitter at UMass Medical.